You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Before I do, if you could just stay up here for a second, I want to thank uh, Pastor Epler for uh, inviting us and hosting us, and, and certainly to Jody and Trish, too. Thank you so much. You've, you've extended such warm hospitality to us, and we deeply appreciate that. But before I let you go, uh, I want to give a gift to you and to the church. These are two books that were commissioned by uh, the Board of Trustees and the President uh, that look back at the last hundred years and celebrate that. So there's a history book, and that's really dense and good reading if you like to know a little more about that place that you've Excellent. never been. <laughs> but then also some wonderful pictures to help you find your way around when you do come Great. to campus in a, in a little while. Thank so, you so much. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that. And I hope you can share it with the congregation, maybe put it in the foyer Absolutely. sometimes so they can yep. look at it as well. Thank Thank you. All right. Thank you, Pastor Epler. You know, uh, Peggy Noonan is probably not the first person that I would generally quote when I start a message. Uh, she's a kind of a political writer and has a lot to say about faith and, and the way that faith intersects with the world that we, we talk about today. Uh, but she has a really interesting quote that I think fits quite well in a Sunday that's about mission and understanding something about mission. And she says this, joblessness is a problem primarily because work is a spiritual event. Now, I'm not really sure if Peggy is a person of faith. I I don't know that I've really read that very much in, in her work. But I think that in this particular area, she's hit the observation exactly on the head. Work really is a spiritual event. Let me see if I can illustrate that in a number of different ways as we go through the morning. First of all, I, I grew up in a small town uh, not too far from the 20th century's manufacturing center of the universe, Detroit, Michigan. It was a great place to grow up. Just about every friend that I had, their family was employed by the auto industry, and the auto industry in the 1970s and the 1980s was a really good deal. Uh, they paid well, cars rolled off the assembly line, all my friends' families got new cars every other year because they got such a great deal from the auto manufacturers, and most of my friends' families owned boats and cabins, and they spent their weekends hunting and fishing for all of the game that was available just outside the doors of their homes. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, that, that's kind of like here. We as kids played sports. Uh, we worked in businesses that supported the auto industry and the growing economy. And at one point, I remember reading that nearly 100,000 auto workers called my little town and the little uh, suburbs around it home. Now, fast forward 30 years later. You've probably seen the news, haven't you? Uh, Detroit is a ghost town right now. What was a city that had almost 2 million people in it now has a little over 150,000 people living there. Uh, it really is a vacant lot. Uh, the, the city of Detroit and the mayor's office is in the process of clearing most of the houses that have been abandoned and turning them back into parks and farmland because the city itself has gone through so many problems. Fewer than 20% of uh, actually manufacturing today generally is in the same position that agriculture was during the 1960s. And I don't, I don't know if you remember that, but agriculture had a hum, huge boom in the United States and uh, then declined very rapidly. Today, fewer than 20% of the workforce in America is engaged in manufacturing. Indeed, 80% of Americans will be in either sales or other professional so-called white-collar jobs uh, in the next 20 years. 
It's astounding how the world has changed. People no longer work one full-time job with benefits. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is the trend. People are working two or three part-time jobs, and none of them have benefits. The world has shifted, and it will shift again. We face enormous economic challenges in the country that we live in. Crime is a daily occurrence in most cities, and interpersonal civility, the ability that we have to carry on conversations with one another, is at an all-time low as people try to scrape out a living in an increasingly self-centered economy. All of this causes me to wonder whether all of these changes are not just economic, social, and political. I really have to wonder if they have spiritual roots. The shift in employment and the subsequent lack of stability is changing the American soul in some foundational ways. If we are all human, spirit-filled beings created by God, and, and I believe we are, then what happens when we collectively pass through this fault line as labor undergoes such radical changes? I think it comes to this in a lot of ways. In Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, through to God, through the Father. This is the overarching command for our lives. Whatever we do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's kind of easy to say that on Sunday. It's easy to say that when we've all been singing wonderful choruses and, and we've been praying together and enjoying such a great, rich time of fellowship. But how do I bring the good news of Jesus and its claims to bear in my job? Because ultimately... That's where missions hits the road. It's not just about all of those wonderful programs that we saw on the screen. Certainly it starts there, and we can carry the mission of Christ to all of the corners of the world, but the corner of the world where we must bear the witness of Christ is the corner that exists right here in Ketchikan. That's the place where we need to be missional, and that's really what I want to talk about this morning. In fact, the church has been rather silent in, in a lot of ways about equipping people for vocations outside of the clergy. Think back, maybe not just to this congregation, but to all the places where you've been. When was the last time you heard a sermon that was explicitly about your job as an act of worship to God? I can almost hear some of my friends, and I have a lot of them who come to mind from my own church, saying, now let's all stand and worship. When what they really mean is, now let's all stand and sing. I'm not saying that music isn't a form of worship. It is. But it's only a very small part of worship. Worship is the totality of the human experience. Worship involves solving problems that are created in the world around us. Worship is much bigger than just what we sing. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when the only time we use that word is when we stand to sing. Worship is so much more. So much more than that. Amy Sherman did a really interesting study, uh, research study a few years ago, where she looked at 152 articles that had been written in discipleship and church magazines that were all on faith and work. And here's what she found. 95% of those magazine articles, 95% of them, were on becoming ministers. Only 5% addressed People in the pews address work in the everyday as an act of worship. So here's the question. How does God do his work 
through my work? Or how does my work help God get his job done? Have you ever, have you ever put together a puzzle? Has anybody ever done that? You know what puzzles are? You get this box. It's got a nice picture on the front of the box, right? You got a nice picture on the box and you sit down. Puzzles in, in my life almost always show up on vacation. Does anybody have that experience? We, we don't do puzzles in our house. I think mostly because our dog would eat all of the pieces. Uh, but they show up on vacation. I don't ever recall buying one. Do you? But somehow they seem to materialize on the kitchen table. I'm not even sure who puts them out. I think that it's the Travelocity gnome. I think he just kind of shows up and puts out puzzle pieces. And, and they're there. Science just hasn't discovered that he's got the ability to do that, I'm sure. Um, but I do know one thing for certain. If a puzzle appears on the table, it will not be long, usually less than 45 seconds, but sometimes maybe a minute, uh, before my wife is sitting at the table sticking puzzle pieces together. And within 10 minutes, the kids and I are drawn to the table like a deer to a salt lick. Uh, we are right there. Now, the curious side of my mind loves puzzles. All those little pieces just have to fit together some way. And I was trained as a scientist, and I just love to see little pieces of things come together. But the logical side of my mind is really screaming at me. A puzzle is just a pretty picture that someone has fiendishly cut into pieces and put in a box. (laughs) Why do we spend so much time putting things together when we already know what they're going to look like? (laughs) If you want the picture for your living room, Cut up the box and put it in a frame. Hang it on the wall outside the bathroom. And go do something else. We're on vacation. Or worse, have you ever seen one of those puzzles that advertise themselves as borderless? What kind of fiendish, devilish mind came up with that? That's crazy. Or how about this? I saw a puzzle the other day. On the box said, eight extra pieces. What do you need those for? What are you going to do with them? Are they pieces that, that, you know, multiples of something in case you lose one? No, I don't think so. They're just there to confuse you. And I have a confession to make. I haven't done this since I've been an adult, though I think I've been accused of it a time or two. But when I was younger, I used to sneak in and steal one of the pieces. And I would hide it in my pocket until the rest of the puzzle was done and everyone was looking on the floor for the last piece. And then I would walk up so I could finish the puzzle. Caden, don't ever try that at home. (laughs) Now, if you ask my wife, uh, she'll tell you the truth about putting puzzles together. Putting a puzzle together has nothing to do with the picture. It's really all about the process. It's about community that you form when you're gathered around a puzzle. You're, You're not really solving anything. You're coming together to build something that you can already see. It's about community. It's not about the picture. You know, my wife's pretty wise, and I I think that's just one of the reasons I married her. Um, Have you ever watched people putting together a puzzle? And you've probably done it, so this will sound familiar. It usually starts with one person kind of sitting down. They spread out the pieces, turn them all over so they're right side up, and sort them out. And pretty soon, other people will come and kind of start to look and, and see what's there. They'll find a couple of pieces. Maybe they fit a couple of pieces together. But puzzling doesn't work by just fitting one or two pieces together. It's just not how it works. First, good puzzlers find the corners. We all know what the corners look like, right? I see some of you nodding. There must be some avid puzzlers in the room. 
We find the, the corners, and then we look for the boundaries, those straight edges, and we connect them to the corners, and we build the boundaries. Every good puzzle starts with boundaries. Next, we start holding up pieces and comparing them to the image on the box. How many of you take the box and, and you don't lay it down flat because then not everyone can see it, right? You stand it up at the end of the table so you can do this. And you can look at those puzzle pieces. We compare them to that image. And before long, what happens? Once you get the boundary done, everybody who's sitting around the table starts to work on their own little island of puzzle, right? And before long, you hear this kind of conversation. Does, does anyone see any more pieces that have red and white? Because I'm looking for the red and white. The whole puzzle's red and white. It's a Coca-Cola puzzle or something. You know, it, it's all red and white. And we're just looking for those pieces. But in the midst of that, one of the most beautiful moments that I see in a puzzle uh, is when people realize that their little islands, their little clusters, can be joined together by just a couple of pieces. Have you ever noticed that? And all of a sudden, you go from four or five little disparate islands to what starts to look like a continent in the middle of the frame. None of it's connected to the frame yet, but it's all sort of sitting there in the middle. How about this? Has this ever happened to you on vacation? You arrive at the cabin that you've rented or the, the condo that you're staying at only to discover that the people who were there before you left an unfinished puzzle. Has that ever happened? That happens to us quite often on vacation. You walk in in the middle of something. And you, you sit around the table and you examine what's been done before and, and then you pick up where the previous people left off. How many of you have ever, when you walked in and found an unfinished puzzle, taken it apart and started over? Oh, no. That would be sacrilegious, wouldn't it? You've got to finish the puzzle that you have. For people who cannot leave things undone, it's really intoxicating. It's addictive. Uh, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have finished puzzles that other people have started just because we couldn't take them apart until they were done. Now, once they're done, we don't have any problem taking them apart. But you can't take it apart before it's finished. In Isaiah, the prophet's talking to people who are living in a really tough, uh, roughly secular, and messed up situation. It's kind of like a puzzle that's gone awry. Listen to a bit of the narrative in the first few chapters. Uh, of the book. It says this, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. Boy, that sounds bad, doesn't it? <clears throat> they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And then moving down to verse 23, Your rulers are rebels and companions of themes, thieves, Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They don't defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Isaiah then goes on to spend the next several chapters talking about all sorts of wrongdoing. He is talking about injustice everywhere. He's talking about corrupt government officials. He's talking about every modern country. Wait a minute. He's, no, he's not talking about any modern country. He's actually talking about Israel in his day. He's talking about the Israel of his time. God's people had slid away from the path of following God into greed, sloth, and thievery. But then as you read through Isaiah, and I encourage you to read through Isaiah, it's, it's this tremendous book that oscillates between everything is bad and these wonderful visions of the future. When you get to chapter 65, uh, right in the middle of Isaiah chapter 65, he stops talking about sin and death and destruction, and he shifts gears. 
you, you can almost see him pulling away from the idea of the mundane. He talks about a sifting process where the faithful will flourish and the others will simply pass away. And then, then Isaiah seems to have a vision. And he says this, For behold, I, meaning God, create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. There will no longer be heard in her, God's people's, the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree so will the days of my people be. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. When was the last time you wore out the work of your hands? We've probably done it some, but this becomes the pattern. So what is Isaiah talking about? Well, let's compare this to the end of the book. Go to Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, John has a similar vision while he's in prison on the island of Patmos. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So what are these two great prophets from our canon of Scripture really talking about? Folks, they're describing the completed picture of a puzzle to a people who are looking at scattered pieces, a people who are discouraged, and can't make sense of what's happening around them. They're talking to a people who can't find the borders. They can't find the corners of the puzzle. Most of them are sitting around at the table, forcing themselves to slam pieces together that don't really fit. They're making little islands of color and shape and not perceiving what they're really supposed to look like. It's as though John and Isaiah are sitting in one room, looking at the box, trying to tell people in the other room how to put the puzzle together. Both John and Isaiah are saying the same thing. If you want to solve the puzzle, you have to know what it will look like when it's done in the new heaven and the new earth. Take a look at the picture on the box. But then let's go back to the middle of Isaiah 65 and look again. It says, They will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. Hang on a minute. I thought heaven was supposed to be about sitting around on clouds with angels playing harps and singing worship choruses all all of eternity long. This scripture seems to imply that there will be work in heaven. They're not living in mansions built for them. They're not eating from the eternal buffet. They're planting, they're harvesting, 
They're eating what they've planted and what God has made, made grow. In another version of Scripture, it says this, they will long enjoy the work of their hands. That's not describing the here and now, folks. That's describing eternity, where we will long enjoy the work of our hands. Did you notice something else? None of the jobs described in this passage are parochial. No ministers, no missionaries, no Bible study leaders. Every job in this passage, every job in the new creation is a secular job. Farmers, builders, architects, these are the jobs that will inhabit the kingdom. These are the things that we're called to do. The difference will be this. We will see the box. We will know what the puzzle is supposed to look like in the new creation. Our work will be unhindered by selfish interest. There's a Christian writer whose name is George MacDonald. I don't know if you've read any of his books, but he, he writes some incredible things. And he envisions a kingdom with businesses who trade with one another, but don't use money, where fairness and civility flourish because the work of everyone's hands is valued equally. You could be almost anything. A teacher, a builder, an administrator, a trash collector, almost anything. Do you really think that heaven will be just a place where we all sit around and talk about the way things were for all of eternity? Wouldn't that get a bit dull? <clears throat> Can you imagine sitting around just singing praise choruses? I mean, some of them are kind of monotonous. Not the ones this morning. They were very nice. But there are some, and you all know those that I'm talking about, and for every one of you, it's a different one. <clears throat> Maybe what heaven is is that the puzzle has finally come together. We can see the big picture. But in the heavenly puzzle, maybe there are no borders. Maybe that's because God has the power to continually enlarge and shape and create this wonderful place called heaven. The work of God for eternity carried out by our hands. Have you ever entertained the possibility that the work that you're doing right now may be some of what you end up doing for eternity? What if everything that happens to us now, the work we do, the small joys in our lives, the tragedy and loss, are all part of creating the person we need to be? Not now, but then. In order to enjoy living and working in the kingdom of God, what if God is putting together this puzzle in our lives in ways that go beyond our biological existence? I teach a class at the university called Cornerstone, and the other day I started class by acting, asking my students what they hoped to be doing in 150 years. They did just what you did. They all laughed. All right? And then someone, you know, the bright student who always raises their hand first, her name's Casey. She sits right about there. Uh, they laughed, and Casey raises her hand and says, Dr. Webb, we'll all be dead in 150 years. What are you talking about? But I was serious, and I am serious. How would you do your job differently if you knew you weren't going to leave it behind? How would you do your job differently if you knew you weren't going to leave it behind? Or maybe think of it this way. How would you approach your work if you knew it was going to take four generations to finish the job? You couldn't do it on your own. It would take years and years and span your lifetime. How would that alter what you do on an, in an everyday basis. See, puzzles are just pictures, chopped up and thrown into a box. So 
let's go back. We've seen the picture at the end of the game. Let's go back and look at the picture before it was chopped up. Let's go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, it says this. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Skipping down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. You see, God doesn't even plant trees in the Garden of Eden until he reaches down and forms man from the dust. Then God links the very presence of humans to the work that they're they're required to do. They're required to tend the garden. From the very beginning of humanity, we have been inseparable from our work. All of this happened before the fall, not after. Work is not the result of the fall. Work was in place before the fall. The fall doesn't even happen until chapter 3. This is chapter 2. In the pre-fall, perfect state, we are to work. In a fully redeemed state, we are to work. We are called to work toward one end, toward building the kingdom of God. And notice, this is not the work of preaching. That comes after the fall, after the life and death and resurrection of Christ. In the perfect puzzle, we are to plant, to build, and to harvest. Our God does not work on the world from outside the world. Pagan gods do that. That's not what our God does. Our God works on the world from within the world, and he uses people to do his work. That means that he uses people, processes, and systems, and it takes way longer than you think it should. And there are times you can't tell what God's been doing and what people have been doing. You can't tell the difference because God is using people to get that work done. And that's okay. That's the world we have. That's the world God designed and God intended for us. Because it is us and God together. It is God using our work to get his work done. So when Adam and Eve fell, we were moved out of that idyllic scene, out of the picture in the box. And the first, for the first time, Adam is working, but he does not sense the divine with him while he's doing what he's doing. It's a desperate state of affairs. Weeds begin to grow. The ground is unruly. Trees must be planted and domesticated. Food crops have to be identified and cultivated. Adam still has the same assignment, to take care of his family, to till the earth. But it's now full of obstacles that he must overcome. You know, I've had all kinds of jobs in my life. My very first job was clearing a swamp. I was 13 years old, and I was big for my age, and the guy down the road said, I have this swamp, it's got a lot of brush in it, I'll pay you 100 bucks if you clear it. You want to motivate a 13-year-old? Give him 100 bucks. He gave me a machete this long, and he said, go to it. And it was an acre large, it was a really big swamp. But in two days, I had taken it down to nothing. And I got my $100. I've done all kinds of things. I've bailed hay, wrangled horses, worked as a wrangler on a ranch for two years, I've cooked steaks. I've worked security. Yeah, that was the wrong choice. I shouldn't have worked security. But, but in each of those jobs, my intent was not altogether right. My intent in each one of those jobs was to get the next job that was better. Because whatever job I had, I was not, not happy in those jobs. It, it was to save up enough money so that I could go to college and get a real job. And then to head off to graduate school so that I could do what I really wanted to do. Along the way, I made a huge error, folks. In the middle of all those temporary jobs, I missed 
that what I was doing were things that I might be doing in heaven one day. Not because I thought of them as menial or beneath me. I, I never really thought that. I was raised to believe that all honest work is valuable and important in its own way. I missed out because I thought the important thing in heaven would be the never-ending worship service. That's what I'd been taught. I missed the holy sacredness of labor as a divine, a divine assignment because I couldn't fit it into the picture. I hadn't seen the, the picture on the cover of the box. Whatever you're doing, it's in the box. The picture's in the box. So the questions that I've been asking are, are really wrong. The questions that I've been asking should be, it's not this. It's not how do I bring Christ into my work. It's how do I bring my work into the kingdom? Do you see this subtle but really important difference? You're not dragging Jesus into your job. You're taking your job into the kingdom of God. When you realize that what you're doing today is setting the stage for what you might be doing in heaven someday, how does that change what you do now? It probably won't change the tasks that you perform, but it might change the way you do your job. And all of that brings us to missions. When your work gets pulled into the kingdom of God, love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, self-control, honesty, placing others more highly than yourself, all of those start to dominate your daily interactions with your coworkers and your family. It's just that simple. It's just that complex. So how do you do it? That's a great question. There are three things that, I, that I'm going to give as homework, because I'm a teacher. This is what I do, homework, okay? So three things that I'm going to give as homework to all of you, and then you're going to test them next week. And then candy bars big as their head. Uh, <laughs> that's what the kids have been working on all week. Okay, so, so tomorrow morning, before your feet hit the ground, I want you to say this. God uses my work to get his work done. God does his work through my work. Say it with me. God uses my work to get his work done. We'll just do that. God uses my work to get his work done. Say that before your feet hit the ground. It points you in a different direction when you get out of the bed. You may even get out on the right side instead of the wrong side. When you get home, write down the name of the person in front of you. All of you look. Who's sitting in front of you? Most of you know these people. Write down the name of the person in front of you on a post-it note and put it where you can see it. Pray that in their job this week, God would get his work done. And then ask them about it next Sunday. All right? And for those of you in the front row, look at the back row. Those are the people you're praying for. Waving back there. Yep. Okay, good. We're good. <clears throat> and then one more thing. In the next seven days, have a conversation where you think about and deeply discuss this topic. How does God use my job to get his work done? Make a list. Write down the ways that his work is done through you. And from that list will come the seeds from which the garden of heaven will grow. Finally, remember this. None of us has found a job on our own. We were put there by God, even if we're retired or unemployed. He has sacred, eternal work for us to do.